Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins, and today I'm here with Chandler Benoit. Hey, hey. And frankly, a person who's very uh, special and near and dear to me because if we go back in my history at Lifeway, which is about seven years now, um, he's been with me from the beginning and, you know, of the almost 6,000 leaders that have gone through pipeline of the thousands upon thousands of churches that use uh, ministry grid and use that content. Uh, the gentleman on the other side, you know, for different things, but I want you to know um, what he means to me. And that is uh, Derwin Gray. And he was on our advisory council from the very beginning. He was somebody that I'd sought out and um, just from uh, his participation in that and, you know, the competencies that are hardwired into the back end of grid that um, you don't know unless you're an educator, you're probably not going to see the pattern there. <laughs> but everything we do is scope and sequence and with purpose. And Derwin was there in the very beginning, along with Kevin Peck and Brad Lominick and uh, and Aubrey Malfers, the godfather of <laughs> so many different things in the church that nobody knows his name, but you should look him up. Um, man, I, it's just a special, special time uh, to be with you, Derwin, because you know, getting to know you over the years and, and, you know, our advisory council stopped meeting, but watching you from afar, watching your church from afar um, has just been an, an amazing thing. And even, sorry, I'll let you talk in a minute. Uh, and even um, the fact that we were just talking about um, one of the people that you brought with you uh, as you went and did ministry uh, or, or as you went and met with us, I just so appreciate when I see a leader intentionally bring someone along. So my dad is a pastor in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky. And I think there's probably a dozen guys that he's brought up and, and, and through. Now, all those guys are bivocational. You never heard of any, any one of them. You haven't heard of my dad either because uh, he's bivocational. And he's in a really small church. But what I can remember throughout my childhood is him bringing guys with him and the importance of that. And so as you practice leadership development, I want people to understand this is not just something you preach or talk about. It's something you actually do and exemplify. When we look at the highest form of development, when we look at the highest form of investment, it moves from command to tell, to teach, to train, to coach, and finally to model. And what Derwin does is at the top of that food chain, it is model. So I love you, man. Uh, we will talk about, he's got a book coming out soon, but I just wanted everybody <laughs> to know that before we got started. What else do people need to know about you besides you're the pastor of Transformation Church, which is in South Carolina, but just south of Charlotte. And I always say Charlotte and I can't think of the town, but tell us more about yourself. I'm all over the place now. Well, bro, first of all, before I dive into that, I just want to say uh, thank you for inviting me to the table of the early days of Ministry Grid and for being a part of it. And uh, we're using a lot of those resources and want to continue to do so. And thank you for what you're doing. And my wife and I were just talking and she really appreciates just those leadership nuggets that you use. So it's affecting our church personally is encouraging my wife, who's an exceptional leader. So thank you very much. What I want people to know about me, number one, is this. 
I have an incredible wife. We'll be married 28 years on May 23rd. We met uh, second semester, my freshman year in 1990, and we've been together ever since. I've got a daughter, 23, a son that's 19. I'm the co-founder and lead pastor of Transformation Church, as you said. And, uh, you know, man, I love Jesus because he first loved me. And I want the world to to know him and to experience his transformative grace because um, he wants to bring heaven to earth, literally, like that we, his people, can be his dwelling. And where there is the dwelling of God, it's the presence and the power and the forgiveness and the beauty of God. And so, uh, yeah, that's what I want people to know about me, bro. Excellent. Excellent. So. Uh, we will be doing our uh, five leadership questions today. But before we do, um, I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, leadership as modeling. Now, you're a good looking guy, but that's not the kind of modeling. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least my mom and my wife think so. So I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> you know, um, what I would say is this. So I became a follower of Jesus at 26 years old. It was my fifth year in the NFL with the Colts. I had a teammate who shared Christ with me for five years. His nickname was the Naked Preacher. And eventually, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was his nickname, what, the what Naked nickname. Preacher. Yeah, he would take a shower after practice, dry off, wrap a towel around his waist and ask guys that didn't know Christ. So for five years, I watched him, heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit awakened my heart to the reality of Jesus. I responded by faith. Um, but for me, my leadership modeling was learned on the football field. Um, when I got to high school, I went to a high school called Converse Judson. It's one of the most successful high school football programs in the country. Uh, like we've been winning since the 80s. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. But there is this culture of the two M's, mentoring and modeling, that the older players pretty much set the culture. And as you guys know, culture is what are the behaviors that it takes to thrive around here? And so we were taught early on, look at the older guys, watch what they do, do what they do. And then when you are a senior, you do the same thing. And so when I became a follower of Christ, um, that was that that was the model is, you know, leadership, as John Maxwell say, says, is influence. And I like to add this leadership is influencing people to become what you're asking them, quote unquote, to do. Oftentimes we think leadership is telling people what to do, whereas I think leadership is helping people become someone so that when they do what it is you're asking them to do, they do it out of the heart that's filled with the gospel. So we say at Transformation Church, um, you can be a leader without being a disciple, but every disciple has an opportunity to be a leader because you're influencing people to become something. And so on trips, when I go to speak and teach, I'm always grabbing someone to come along with me. And I just I just think that that is really, really important. But also one of the things that I'm tweaking and learning, too, is that when I take younger people on staff to conferences with me and I speak, I let them know, number one, this is not normal. So don't think that this is the end goal. 
Like my goal was not to be a conference speaker, a thought leader. My goal was simply to love Jesus, to reach people and disciple them. And so I will take them uh, to events where I'm reading to elementary kids on reading week. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll take them to hospital visits when I'm with the sick. And, And so it's important that the young ones don't think, oh, man, this is it, man. You, you know, you. You get to go in the green room and you speak and people tell you you're awesome. And I'm like, no, man, that is like 0.01% of what it actually means to be a leader. I love that. I love that. That is a as you go model. And just thank you for sharing that. I wanted to do that before we uh, got into our, our five questions. So the first question, of course, is who are you currently learning from, Derwin? Uh, so, Todd, that is uh, a great question. Uh, I am learning uh, from N.T. Wright and Scott McKnight and uh, Tony Evans. So uh, Scott McKnight was my doctoral advisor and he and N.T. Wright are really good friends. And what they're helping me do is to connect the dots of the first century, second temple Jewish world. Jesus, in his own words, in his own time, um, and allowing us to apply that in a timely fashion. So that has just been utterly beautiful. My understanding of who Jesus is, the role and purpose of the church and the gospel has flourished. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans, um, as a African-American preacher in the evangelical space, Dr. Evans has modeled for me sound expositional preaching with the dynamic of an African-American exposition, but also his aspect of understanding how the gospel connects to issues of justice. And so uh, I'm constantly learning from him. Uh, I love every one of those people. <laughs> and I don't know if you're talking about. Um, so Dr. Evans, the way he has led his entire life, uh, but especially in the last in the last year or two, has just been amazing. And and even his new Bible is uh, just, <laughs> I mean, you enjoy listening. I got to it, man. I got Ooh. it. I got that thing as soon as I could. Hey, <laughs> and here's the other thing. Uh, it, you know, uh, N.T. writes the New Testament in its world came out last fall. Uh, and I don't know if, if, if that is the the book that you would say, man, this is rich in what I'm sifting right now. Um, but man, that, that is a incredible book as well. It, yeah, it, it is. Uh, I would I would say the two books that I love of his the most is uh, Paul, the one that he writes on Paul that's new. And right. also the day that the revolution began, where he really unpacks that um, the atonement of Christ is rooted in the Passover and the day of atonement. And that through the work of Christ, the new Passover, over lamb, the church, which is Jews and Gentiles, are now the new people of the new Exodus. And it's just a beautiful story. Like we all live by stories. And Todd, uh, you know, I think you two would agree with this, that oftentimes as evangelicals, we want to put Jesus into our story. But the reality is, is he redeemed us to be in his story. Man, that's a great word. Mm. Well, Derwin, I want to I want to go back to you were talking about John Maxwell's um, definition of leadership. And it made me think of, I think Harry Truman said this first, but a lot of other 
people have said it as well. They said, a leader is a person who has the ability to get others to do what they don't want to do and like it. <laughs> and I've heard a lot of coaches use that kind of in their phrasing of what, how coaching is and coaching players in that way. And especially for you as a, a former football player, what would you say kind of were the similarities of, of coaching and leadership? Yeah. So uh, for me, this is exceedingly personal. So when I went to Judson High School, my sophomore year, I was five foot eight, 145 pounds. I ran a 5.25 40 yard dash. So that is not future NFL material. But as I began to listen to Coach D.W. Rutledge, the head coach, and Mike Sullivan, defensive coordinator, as I began to listen to them and buy into not just hard work, because you can work hard at doing the wrong thing, but learning how to work hard strategically, progressively with a goal in mind. So in one year, I went from uh, running a 5-2-5 to running a 4-6, and I was one of the top athletes on the team. But here's the thing about our coaches. Our coaches not only told us what to do, but they were actually young enough to model what to do. And then the older players modeled it as well. And then I began to supersede the older players that I was growing at such a rate. And then once I caught the bug that me working hard is a joy. And also, and I think this is so important, that the goal of working hard is not accomplishment. Working hard is the goal. That's the reward. The reward is every fiber you had, you brought it to bear to be the best that you can be. And so that's one of the aspects of leading is what I talk to uh, about our church is and our staff is we don't do this so that we lead and serve and grow and mature by faith because we've already received the greatest gift and that's Christ Jesus. So man, that'll, get you, that'll get you fired up. <laughs> it will. It will. I'm about to tee him up too. Uh, <laughs> how does this, so, uh, you know, from, uh, interacting with me early on and just the foundational things that we were talking about with Lifeway leadership and what we wanted to accomplish the big thing is awakening the heart of leaders to uh, Ephesians 4. But a, a, a big part of that as well is saying, hey, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, everybody knows that one. Uh, but we can't treat baptism like it's the finish line. It's the starting line. Ephesians um, uh, 2, 10, being workmanship of, of God. Yeah. Talk about that idea of how that informed your view of the individual member of the body of Christ and not just building an audience, but building an army. Yeah. Yeah. So what's beautiful is Paul is writing to the multi-ethnic churches in Ephesus. And of course he's trying to bring Jews and Gentiles together uh, around the gospel as a fulfillment to the covenant of Abraham. And so what I like to say is grace creates a new race. And so you can't spell grace without spelling race. And so Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is we're saved by grace. We're rescued by grace. But verse 10 says we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And if you read verses 11 through 22, there's a couple of themes. One is in verse 12, it says 
the covenants of old, that God made a covenant with Abraham that he would give him a family. And this family would be of, made up of all the families. It'd be a multi-ethnic one. And so in verse 14, it says, Christ is our peace. Verse 16, it says, we're one new man. Verse 17 says, we have access to the Father. And then verses 19 through 20 says, we're the dwelling place of God. So grace creates this new multicolored race who exist for the glory of God. It, it, so, so my role is to equip people to recognize who they have been engrafted into, that's Christ, but also to live as this new people who exists, not for my own glory, but for God's glory. And here's the beauty. When we lose our life in Christ, that's when we find our lives. And just to give a testimony, I grew up as a compulsive stutterer, I didn't own a Bible. I didn't want to be a preacher. I had goals that I wanted to accomplish. And when I look back, all of those goals are puny compared to truly finding my life as a pastor, as an author. And I'm going, who in the world would have ever thought that Dewey from the hood would have a doctorate, <laughs> write books, be on a leadership podcast? Uh, my goal was to... Uh, get rich in the NFL, win a Super Bowl, and exactly. God had bigger things in mind, but Paul beautifully communicates that this grace creates a new race, and this new race is God's dwelling of oneness and unity. And as you point out in Ephesians 4, uh, 12, uh, we're equipping the saints, the holy ones, for the work of ministry, ministry in the body of Christ and mission outside of the body of Christ. Mm. Todd, you teed him up and he uh, hit that one out of the park for sure. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that, Darwin. It's a well-known fact that planting churches and campuses is the most effective way of reaching the lost. And launching in a rented venue like a school or a theater is one of the most cost-effective ways to launch a new church. So if you're planning to launch a church or a campus and trying to figure out how to do that really well in a rented space, we encourage you to check out our friends at Portable Church. The team at Portable Church Industries takes your vision and creates engaging environments around it that keep volunteer retention high and allow more energy to be spent on ministry. So go to portablechurch.com slash lifeway to learn more and to find free customized resources that teach you how to launch portable and launch strong. Um, well, I want to I move. I want to move to a little bit more of on the ground right now type of questions. So, of course, with with COVID nineteen, the season that we're in right now, a lot of ministry is looking unique and different than it did um, before a month and a half ago. So, what is the main point of emphasis for your for you and your leadership team right now, trying to lead through kind of this foggy season? Yeah, you know, I think six weeks ago, we were all in shock. And so as a leader, one of, one of the things you're taught, and as a football player, one of, one of the things you're taught is this. No matter what's happening, keep your mind, keep your vision, and adapt. When everybody else is losing their mind, you have to keep your composure. So the first thing is 
a leader communicates this is reality. So the reality is there is a heinous virus that's out there. So number one, we need to protect our people. We need to be in alignment with the CDC. And then we need to make sure we're communicating to our church and still serving them. And so uh, we had been online uh, for years and our online capabilities have grown and matured. And so in the last six weeks, uh, our online attendance has grown 400 hmm. percent. Uh, for Easter, we had like one hundred and seventeen thousand people watching. Our giving has gone up. 20%. Uh, we're feeding 20% from last year at this time. We are feeding about 300 families per week through our mobile food pantry. Uh, we're doing celebration of healthcare heroes, taking them Chick-fil-A and praying for them and cheering for them like a parade in our cars. And so we want, we want people to know that the church is not the building. The church is the people. And so we have created online tools for discipleship. My wife has started a online Bible study that has close to 700 women in it, and it may be over that now. And so in the midst of this, we are seeing a yearning and a hungering for truth because I think our sandcastles got knocked down by the wave called COVID. And people are going, I really want to know what this rock is. I really want to build my life on a firm foundation. But also uh, for the first three weeks, I was leading our church through learning how to grieve, learning how to mourn. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Um, the word blessed, as you guys know, in the Greek is makros. And that word literally means happy, happy, are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Mourning and lamenting is a is a is an ancient spiritual discipline where we have solidarity with Jesus who also mourned, who also suffered, but we also have solidarity with people around the world and in our neighborhood and our families who are hurting. And in our hurting, it makes us long for all the sad things to become untrue. It, it makes us long for the wrong to be made right. In other words, it makes us long for Jesus and the hope that we have. And as y'all know, our hope is a blessed assurance that him who walked out of the tomb brought new creation in the midst of the old and his resurrection power will give us his grace, which is sufficient for this moment. And so if we dismiss grief, we forfeit growth and evangelicals. A lot of our theology is uh, very thin happiness. You know, the best is yet to come. Well, that's true. If you realize that's Jesus. It may not be the best circumstance. And so we're learning how to grieve. And in our grief, we are experiencing growth. You know, one, one aspect of that that you were breaking down there was, man, that our sandcastles have been knocked down by COVID. And, you know, just trying to process all that's happened over the past month and a half. I, I think there are some silver linings in this, right? I mean, we're going to, the Lord is pointing us back to, what the truth that matters, you know, that, that Jesus says the great greatest commandments are love, love the Lord, your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And I really do feel that he's stripping a lot of the excess away of things that we've built our life on. So yeah. I know 
you, you have a book coming out soon called The Good Life, and it talks about trying to find happiness. And I think this is a great time for just to hear a little bit more about that, because a lot of people are looking for, for joy, for happiness. And, and like you said, there, luckily, and, and hopefully this is the case even after this, that people are running to the church looking for truth. But for those who are going through this right now, and I know you wrote a whole book on it, um, it's coming out soon, but what would you share to that person who's trying to figure out man, I am just going through a rut right now. I have happiness. I don't even know what that is. I don't even know what joy is right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would do is I would hug them and I would just listen. I would want to hear their story. Um, I would want them to bear their heart. Um, and as they do, I would like, I would, I would lead them to the intersection of Jesus and their life. And the reality is we have looked for happiness and the things that God has created us to use. And we've actually missed the person who can bring us happiness. And so Jesus in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five, verses three through 12, it's like he says, sit down at my feet and let me teach you. And he goes through nine different characteristics of a blessed or happy person. And these characteristics actually reflect Jesus. They actually reflect the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying, enter into my story. Let my story get into you and let me form you and shape you into the person you were meant to become. Like happy are the merciful. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are the pure in heart. Jesus is saying, happy are those who let God have his will and his way in their life. So happiness is not about good things always happening to you. It's about God actually making you good. And so we find a happiness that's rooted in something deeper, better, and more beautiful than simply our circumstances. Like the happiness of God is like this blessed assurance that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ and that I am in the will of God for the purposes of God and the glory of God. And the happiness is we look in the mirror and go, oh my gosh, I don't even recognize this person. Hmm. Well, Thank you so much for that. And for those who are wanting to check out the book, uh, when does it come out, Derwin? Uh, the book releases on June 2nd, but I want to encourage everyone to pre-order it. Um, Lifeway is selling the good life. What Jesus teaches about finding true happiness at a 25% discount. You can also go to the goodlifebook.net. That's the goodlifebook.net. And you can see other places where you can buy the book as well. But it'll, the good life will be everywhere. Good, good. Awesome. Well, what are one or two things that you feel like you have to do other than the spiritual disciplines, which you've already talked about some? Uh, that you, you have to do, uh, daily to stay sharp as a leader. You know, I think the first thing is this, uh, if I'm not loving and serving my wife and children, what am I doing? Um, sadly, uh, I received an email from a gentleman who's walked with the Lord for years and we, we have a ministry partnership and he's having to take some time off because he frankly said I was having an affair with my ministry. Uh, the reason why we as leaders idolatrize our ministries is because we're looking to our ministries to fix a broken part of us. And Jesus is the only carpenter 
who can renovate and fix the brokenness in our lives. And the danger of using ministry to fix our broken hearts is that it looks spiritual. And the greatest danger is that even people can benefit from our idolatry, which is really sad. Like we won't have any joy, but people will benefit. And so we have to really be careful that I am embodying this leadership reality in my home. And so loving and serving my wife is my first priority after receiving the ministry of God's love. And then secondly, how am I loving and serving my children and walking alongside of them? Then thirdly, it's, am I embodying what I want our church staff and community to become? Well, you you already touched on this just a little bit, but we'll go into the fourth question of what does leadership in your home look like? So you talked about making that a priority, but when it comes down to it, what does that actually look like in your home? Yeah, because I will say this, his wife is diesel from a leadership perspective. So, so I'm eager to hear this one too. (laughs) Yeah. You you know, um, I think the, I, I think the first thing is, uh, for us to continue to pursue each other um, like we've always done. Like our marriage should grow in intimacy emotionally, spiritually, that we're constantly pursuing each other, making time for each other, that we are like my wife is my best friend. Like I love to hang out with my wife. And so continuously learning how do I meet her needs? How do I grow in speaking her love language? How do I support? How do I encourage her? How do I meet her where she's at? Right. And and so, um, those are, those are, those are things that, that, that we do, you know, we, we have dates, we spend a lot of time together. We talk to each other, we advise each other, we encourage each other. And for the young husbands out there, let me say this, when your wife is communicating frustrations. Don't try to fix it. Just listen. Just listen. Just listen and be observant. Because what she's really saying is in me sharing how I'm feeling, I want you to understand before you try to fix. Because if you try to fix something you don't understand, you're getting ahead of the spirit. And so it's really making sure that we support each other. Because like I said, my wife is an executive director of strategy at our church. And so we work closely together and also having boundaries that when we get home to making sure that we're practicing our Sabbath rest to make sure at a certain time, it's like, okay, we're done talking about ministry of transformation church. Um, That's really important. It's also important to be accessible and to be available to our children. Um, What I'm finding is as your kids get older, they need you differently. And so we have to adjust our leadership and parenting as our children get older. You know, they're they're not nine and 10, they're 23 and 19. And so how you interact, but the main thing is relationship and being accessible and you're never too busy for your kids. If I'm in a meeting and my wife and my kids call, the meeting stops. Um, a couple of years ago is when my son was in high school and uh, I was filming um, a Bible study for Lifeway. And at a certain time, I told the camera crew, listen, uh, we got to stop for about an hour. 
I'm going to my son's football practice. And when it's done, I'll be back and we will continue. Uh, my dad never showed up to any of my games or practices. I only missed five practices in my son's entire football career because one, I wanted him to know that I loved him and that he mattered to me and that he was more important than anything. And I, you know, as well as with my daughter as well. And so as leaders, it's important that the rhythm of our home matches what we're saying. That's good. That's good. Uh, any particular instances that you can think of where that um, that time of setting apart or, or setting those boundaries, where was that challenged? Can you give us an example? Yeah, absolutely. And, and how you handled absolutely. it? Because <laughs> there's probably a Not lot of well. <laughs> our, our, our listeners are um, primarily yeah. made up of church leaders, and a lot of those leaders yeah. will be serving alongside a spouse. Yeah. So uh, what I would say is this, is that when we planted Transformation Church, this was in 2010. So our daughter was about 13 and it was always a goal to be present in her life. But if you're present and tired, you can't hear nor see things as well as you can. And so I do know for a fact that we were so tired planting, man. And not only did we plant, guys, but as you know, we planted an intentionally multi-ethnic church in South Carolina. I, I, I mean, this is utterly ridiculous. Like slaves, one of the first places that African slaves touched foot on American soil was in South Carolina. And so we're in the South Carolina, Charlotte border, and we're planning an intentional, not like accidental multi-ethnic church, but an intentional multi-ethnic church, which means you talk about things that typically don't get talked about in the pulpit. And so (laughs) you're tired, you're raising money, you're doing all this stuff. And our daughter would love to talk at night. And a lot of times, man, I was just so tired that I was present, but absent. And I have repented to her for that. We have just a wonderful relationship, but she did carry the weight of that. And so with Jeremiah, our second one, we were not in a planting phase, but we also were in the phase of, I'm not going to give my best energy to the church. My best energy is going to be to my wife and to my kids first. I'm not going to give my family leftovers. So like, I'm not going to give my family fumes and Uh, I wish I would have done that differently with our daughter. Um, It did have some adverse effects, uh, but thank God for repentance. And I have apologized to her and we have a beautiful relationship. She's an amazing young woman. And uh, I find myself learning and growing from her. Actually, the reason why I wrote The Good Life, what Jesus teaches about finding true happiness is because of her. We're walking in downtown Oslo, Norway, a few years back on spring break for our son. And I was giving her all the excuses of why I couldn't write. And she just stopped me and said, dad, if you're writing this book for God, then you write it to him as a gift. All this other stuff doesn't matter. And I was like, wow, she's right. So I was rebuked and simultaneously joyful that she had been listening. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. 
Well, uh, I think you're you're already uh, unpacking the the last question a little bit because your daughter is 23. Um, but if you could go back and talk to your 20 year old self, you know what what advice would you give, and and what uh, leadership advice would you give as well? <sighs> so I was an unbeliever then. So what I would say to my 20 year old self is. Um, Derwin, you know, it's cool that you're killing it in college. It's cool that you're killing it in a football field and you're going to go to the NFL. That's cool. But make sure that you allow Jesus to perform surgery on your broken heart, because there's going to become a day that the accolades, the money, the fame, uh, it's not going to be effective to silence the noise. And then secondly, what I would say as a leader is don't be so arrogant and don't be so prideful. I was the worst kind of prideful person. My pride was in my humility. Well, I'm humble. So what I would say is, you know, Derwin, just make sure that you listen and listen particularly to older people that have gray hair because they've got a lot of wisdom. Okay, I got to stop you right now because my pride was my humility is mm-hmm. something we need to unpack. <laughs> no, it is because when you say that, uh, we either are that and we need to be convicted of it or we know someone uh, who, who is that or, or will be leading someone who is that. So can you break that down for me, what you mean when you say that? Yeah, yeah. So. I came from an environment where um, I didn't have a child outside of marriage. Um, I got married at 21. I graduated college. I wasn't on drugs. I wasn't an alcoholic. In other words, everything that my family was not, I made it. So look at me. I'm a hard worker. I'm a good guy. I don't brag. I'm humble. And so I began to look at myself through the lenses of look at all that I've accomplished. And the sad thing is people would cheer, but they didn't understand it in my heart. I was going, yeah, I deserve that because I'm awesome. Now, I'm not going to tell you I'm awesome. I'm just going to say thank you. But on the inside where life is really lived, I was very prideful. And And here's the thing is I was nice and I was kind because I knew I could get something out of it. It was very transactional. It wasn't transformational that I'm going to love you simply because you have intrinsic worth. It was, okay. you see that I'm doing well. I'm going to do something for you because you can do something for me. And the Lord really broke me of that. And the way he broke me of that is when the naked preacher, Steve Grant, showed me Romans 3.10, that no one is good. And then Luke, uh, I believe it's Luke 18.10, only God is good. And so in comparison to God, no, I'm not good. And by the way, when I make comparisons against other people, I'm pulling a splinter out of their eye and not looking at the log in my eye. And so now... You know, empty hands I bring simply to the cross I cling, that Jesus is my enough. I don't have to prove anything. Jesus is my proof. I don't have to be good enough. Jesus is my 
good enough. Well, just once again, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, appreciate you. Appreciate your um, authenticity uh, and and the fact that I think you are humble. <laughs> um, but I, I really, really, more than anything, uh, just appreciate you being with us um, as Lifeway leadership for this long and, um, man, uh, grateful to you for, uh, always cheering us on and, and that your, you know, your church uses the, the tool that we built together and man, just thank you again so much. And, um, hope to see you again soon. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I, uh, I appreciate you guys and, uh, uh, thank you for what you're doing. And I pray that the good life is a resource that can disciple leaders who can then disciple more leaders. Amen. All right. Well, guys, thanks for listening so much. Uh, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with somebody. First of all, then hop on over to iTunes and leave a rating and review so people can find it. Thanks for listening.